It's good to see all of you that I see. It'd be nice to see more, but it's good to see you. And best of all, God is with us. Let's open with prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We thank you for the measure of health that we enjoy and that we're able to be here. And we thank you for this building, and we thank you for these brothers and sisters who are here with us. We thank you for your word, and we pray that you would uh, apply it to our hearts and sanctify its message to our use uh, from this time of Bible study this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, okay, well, first of all, I guess I'll give you uh, the latest update that I have regarding my father-in-law, and some of you may have seen... um, my wife uh, posted on the internet, and I think it's gotten out otherwise. Well, so he was taken to the hospital last night by ambulance for COVID. He hasn't actually, uh, my, my mother-in-law tested positive, but um, she apparently got it first. She apparently came down with it around the 10th of November. And um, at the time they were tested, some days later, my father-in-law didn't have it yet at that time and tested negative. But his symptoms are very much indicative of COVID right now, and it would be a strange thing if just a few days after my mother-in-law got COVID, he came down with a different sickness that had the same symptoms. So we think it's COVID. Well, he was taken to the hospital, as I say, yesterday evening, long about 9 o'clock, I guess, by ambulance. The the reason was that uh, he was becoming faint, uh, very... um, seeming like he was going to lose consciousness and possibly fall over. And if he were to fall on the floor, my mother-in-law couldn't get him up. He probably couldn't get himself up. So uh, they realized that that was kind of the end of, um, of being able to keep him at home. They had done pretty well. His, his blood oxygen had fluctuated, got down to 83 earlier in the day yesterday, and then with a CPAP machine and the steroid that their doctor, thank you, prescribed, it, it went back up to a good level, or at least an acceptable level, over 90. But um, So anyway, um, he was taken to the hospital, and the last update that we got was uh, from my mother-in-law was uh, after he had gotten settled there in the emergency room and stable, and his uh, fever was acceptable, his 100-point-something, and um, his blood oxygen was acceptable, they hadn't, they hadn't given him supplemental oxygen yet. They did have him in a CPAP, which that's kind of the lowest level of, of uh, uh, breathing support. So he's on that. He's 86 years old, and he has uh, type 2 diabetes, and he has congest- had congestive heart failure for a good many years. So it, it scared us all pretty bad to see him going to the hospital with, uh, well, to see him just get COVID, period, because that's, you know, that's like some of the main... Uh, um, comorbidities there but looking good so far so you know we're not out of the woods yet by ways but we thank you all for your prayers we appreciate that and um we're looking forward to hearing more information and we were last night lee and i were talking we're saying why what you just crave is more information you want to know what's going on what is the deal and that's what you can't get so you have to trust god but we have to do that anyway god has all the latest updates on how he's doing. Well, all right. Let's move on then to 2 Corinthians. We're back in chapter 5. Hmm. I didn't put this, uh, I didn't uh, finish that title there. But anyway, 
So I'll uh, read the rest of the chapter starting at verse 12. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 12 to the end of the chapter. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God, or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Okay, this all is one big section of the chapter. Last time I had two sections of the chapter. They were a little shorter, and this is one bigger section, and which uh, the the title uh, is not original with me, but be reconciled to God. So let's go through it by the verses now and see what we can see. So verse 12, we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. So Paul and his fellow workers, Silas and Timothy and Titus, uh, didn't need to start all over again explaining to the Corinthians why they should be believed. Why should you believe us? And we come and we tell you that Jesus is the Son of God. He rose from the dead. Why should you believe us? No, they don't need to start all over again with that, commending ourselves again to you. But he says they, he wants to, here to provide answers that the faithful members of the church, Corinthian church can use against false teachers. So now boasting here, um, the commentators are saying that that has a little different flavor or sense uh, in our modern use of the word today. We just, boasting just isn't good. But, uh, and, and of course, he told the Corinthians some of their boasting was not good either. But in this case, um, similar to um, he that glorieth, let him glory in the cross, um, not that we are, it would sound strange today, wouldn't you see, if I'm boasting of the cross of Jesus, I'm boasting that Jesus died for me. Well, no, boasting doesn't sound good. But the idea of glorying in it, this is what I delight to tell you about. Not anything that I've accomplished, but, but, but let me tell you, Jesus died for me. That's special. So that sense of boasting. So giving them something that they can say to against false teachers, because remember they had a false teacher problem at Corinth. Uh, false teachers, false brethren, agitators, people who had come in there and were uh, apparently Judaizers. It sounds like they were. They, there were usually those going around. They're saying, oh, we're Christians, but Paul's got it all wrong, and Paul's teaching all the wrong doctrine. So 
Here's, he gives them answers in the preceding parts of chapter 5 that they can use against these false teachers. And using the word members there, I don't mean to, I'm, I mean that in a neutral sense and in the broadest possible sense, as those who worshipped uh, when the church at Corinth uh, assembled together, those who met together with the church and worshipped with them as part of the church. I, I thought later after I put this in there, that I didn't want to open a discussion about uh, uh, the, you know, various groups did debate um, the importance of formal membership and being in a membership role versus not. And I didn't want to take a position on that discussion one way or the other. So, but anyway, just the people in the church there. Okay, so verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. If the apostles, if the, well... And, and the Apostle Paul and his fellow workers in, in the gospel, if they seem sometimes to be beside themselves, that was in response to God. That was in response to God's word. That was in response to God's truth. Now, I don't think that uh, the Apostle Paul was running the backs of the pews. <laughs> they don't think they had pews. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of people running the backs of pews. I've never seen it done, <laughs> but... Uh, uh, I, you can picture that, I sort of, but I don't think it would be a good idea. Um, I, have, I have been in some places and times and groups where people ran the aisles. I didn't think that was a very good idea either. But uh, I don't think that's what the Apostle Paul meant here by being beside themselves. I think of a time later on in the Apostle Paul's ministry when he was brought before Festus to answer for the crimes that he was accused of. Remember, Paul was telling him that God has, has uh, you know, shown that Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is the Christ, the Son of God, because God raised him from the dead, and Festus can't take it anymore. And Festus says, Paul, you are beside yourself. Your, your much learning is driving you mad. You're, you're crazy to say that because for Festus, you know, uh, for a Roman to think that a member, not even a Roman citizen, not even a lowly citizen, let alone a noble, but a, a lowly foreigner who is thus subject to crucifixion. Because if you were a Roman citizen, so you couldn't be crucified uh, in the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was for slaves and subject peoples like the Jews. To say that someone who was a member of a subject people and then suffered the most horrible, uh, terrible, shameful death that Roman ingenuity had been able to come up with. And they had quite a bit of ingenuity in that in the ancient world. To say that that person was, had risen from the dead, well, Paul, don't you know that people don't rise from the dead? Of course we know that. That's the beauty of it. He did. That's why it was special that he did. But, uh, no, Paul, you're crazy. And those of us who believe the Bible are sometimes called crazy. And so, well, you guys are crazy. You believe what the Bible says? Well, yeah, I do. That's right. That God created the world in six days? Sometime inside the last 10,000 years? Make it the last six. But anyway, uh, yeah, I believe that. And no, I'm not crazy, but they think I am. But, you know, we, we believe God, 
And we have good and adequate reason to do that. We don't believe it, really, because we're crazy. We don't believe it because, I don't know, we just decided to existentially. It just made us feel good to believe that. No, we believe it because God has given us good, adequate, and sufficient evidence to know with our understanding that his word is true. We're not beside ourselves, really, but this world thinks we are some of the time, a good bit of the time. And that's our response to God's truth. But if we seem sometimes to be beside ourselves, Paul said for the, the apostles, we, sometimes we maintain a sober, quiet demeanor so that they could teach the believers more effectively. Um, you know, they're not, uh, they're not being uh, Mr. Crazy Guy, always foaming at the mouth and stomping and snorting. And, and, but they're teaching plainly and clearly so that people can understand. And it's for your sakes, he says. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. Now, I know this is sort of the middle of a sentence, and the Apostle Paul does use some long sentences sometimes, doesn't he? Like Ephesians chapter 1. There's a sentence for you. But um, he does use some long sentences, and this is in the middle of one, but let's stop and talk about it for a second here. So the love of Christ compels us. The old King James says the love of Christ constraineth us or constrains us. And actually, as I was reading the uh, commentators and talking about the sense of the Greek word that's used here, they say, according to what they say, they didn't really mention this, but it occurred to me that really constrain fits better than compel. Because to compel... You know, sort of to, pro, to propel forward, to, to make to go this way. But constrain is, is to hem in. And, um, you know, a, a straitjacket would hem you in. Actually, I understand that the same Greek word, I didn't feel like putting Greek words in my lesson this time, so I didn't. But the same Greek word is used when Paul says, I'm in a strait betwixt two. You know, so I, I'm in a narrow spot. You know, and... Um, so the love of Christ uh, hems us in. It, um, it uh, shuts us in on both sides, narrowing us to one line of action and purpose. It's like a narrow road with walls on either side. What else can we do because Christ loved us so much? And of course, this is primarily Christ's love for us, but of course, it also could refer to our love for him, our love toward Christ, which is our natural, well, not the natural fallen man, but our proper fitting response to his love. We love him because he first loved us. But his love to us constrains us. What else can we do if Christ loved us that much and loves us that much still? What else can we do but serve him? Um, and, you know, I was thinking of a song. I learned a, a new song uh, recently, How Can I Keep From Singing? And uh, it's, it's good. Um, and it's kind of like, well, you know, because the love of God constrains me. The love of God is so good that how can I keep from singing about it? And Paul's saying, well, you know, the love of God is so good. How can we keep from just testifying about him in every way and telling people about him in every way and glorifying him every way we can? Um, as, uh, oh, it was William Booth in uh, the last verse of one of his songs kind of became the theme song of the Salvation Army. He wrote, uh, uh, the song kind of talks about uh, finding uh, 
a deliverance through the blood of Christ. And in the last uh, verse, he says, Now, alleluia, the rest of my days shall gladly be spent in promoting his praise. Yes, that's kind of how we feel. The love of Christ constrains us. So, compels or constrains. So, if one died for all, then all died. It's true that all were dead spiritually. We were all dead in trespasses and sins, right? That's how we were before Christ. Um, And all were under sentence of eternal death. So, we were spiritually dead uh, before Christ, um, before we believed on Christ. We were spiritually dead. We were under sentence of eternal death, rightful sentence. It was rightfully ours. But chiefly here is then all died is that uh, because Christ's death was counted as the death of us for our death. So here, think there's the condemned criminal and he's condemned to be put to death. And uh, it's, you know, legally uh, in the books, uh, so to speak, on our behalf, it says the sentence was carried out, so to speak. Because if one died for all, then we're all dead. It's almost as if to say, and I know, not literal, I can't say literally those words appear in God's book, but I, it is as though uh, that appeared in God's book. You know, Steve Woodworth, who is a guilty sinner and richly deserving of eternal death, um, and is sentenced to eternal death, and then and the sentence has been carried out. Wow, that's good. But not on me, right? It wasn't carried out on me. Uh, I'd still be there today. But it was carried out on the Lord Jesus on my behalf. Because one died for all. Then all died. That is a way in which I like the New King James translation better than the Old King James. The Old says, one died for all, then we're all dead. But here it says, that one died for all, and again, I like this better because the commentators who, who read and understand Greek, uh, as they explain what is meant here, um, this is closer to what is meant, than all died. So we're crucified with Christ, aren't we? All right. Verse 15. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer, live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So since Christ died in the place of each sinner, and therefore each sinner, from the moment he repents and believes on Christ for salvation, should not live anymore to please himself, rather to please Christ, his risen Lord. That's straightforward. That doesn't, uh, I don't even have to read the commentators to see that. Uh, Since Christ died for me, since my life was forfeit, my eternal life was rightfully forfeit because of my sin. Christ died for me and took the punishment, fulfilled, satisfied God's justice on my behalf. Uh, because of that, it's only proper, it's only right, it's plain that I should not henceforth live for myself, but for the Lord Jesus, live to please him. Ah, how much of my life has been lived in pleasing myself? Um, well, one can strive to do better. 16. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Um, I don't know whether the Apostle Paul or any of those with him 
might have um, actually seen Christ um, during his earthly ministry, before his crucifixion. I sometimes wonder if Paul could possibly have. I suppose it might be possible that he did. Uh, Wasn't a follower of his, of course, but might have seen him. But I don't know. I can't prove that by a long shot. But I've just wondered, was that possible? Could that have been? Now, of course, Christ, uh, Paul saw Christ on the Damascus Road. He saw the, the risen Christ, and he was witness to Christ after his resurrection. But whether Christ knew... No, let's get it again. <laughs> let's try this. Whether Paul knew Christ, like knew who he was. Oh, yeah, that, that, that's Jesus of Nazareth. Um, before the crucifixion or not, there were certainly things that he knew about the Lord Jesus Christ afterward when Paul was breathing out threatenings and slaughter and heading for Damascus to bind the believers who were there and so on, and when he held the garments of those who were casting stones at uh, the deacon Stephen. Um, Paul knew, oh, well, Jesus of Nazareth is this guy, and he's from Nazareth, he's a man, and he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, and uh, they claim he's risen, but he, of course, at that time, didn't, Paul didn't believe that. So he knew things about Christ, and so um, what about that? Well, okay, first of all, we know no one according to the flesh. So from the first time we came to Christ, from, from, from the time we come to Christ, uh, there ought to be a sense in which we recognize no one by the things that distinguish him in this life. Now, that doesn't mean we don't recognize their visage. We do, of course. That doesn't mean we don't know the things that distinguish them in this life. Of course, we know those things. But in terms of how we recognize this person as a friend, it's how we recognize this person as one of us. This is one of us. This is my kind of people. That we're not looking at nationality. You know, whether I recognize someone as a brother is not on the basis of his nationality. And so our, our Indian brethren, when they're here, they're my brothers, and uh, two brothers and a sister usually are here. Um, absolutely. Um, and it doesn't matter what nation we're in. It's not about wealth. It's not about education. Uh, there may be times when we feel uh, more, it's easier to feel fellowship with someone uh, who has the same education that you do, whether for good or ill. Uh, but uh, yet, the fact is that and recognize someone as a brother and, and feeling that kinship that we do in Christ, education doesn't have anything to do with it. And uh, I know I've seen this, uh, very educated people and very uneducated people, and yet in good fellowship uh, around the gospel of Christ. They probably couldn't have much of a conversation with each other about many topics uh, about which their, in, their knowledge was so much different. But they had that fellowship around the gospel of Christ. Um, so um, any of those things, social status or power, none of those things matter that much. We know that they exist. We sometimes know that people have, often, often come to church and and sometimes we don't even know 
what kind of education our fellow believers have or how much money they have or, or things like that. Just as well, those things are secondary. They're down the list. We, um, we regard no one according to the flesh. And even Christ, we regard not primarily by his earthly attributes. As far as uh, who is Jesus of Nazareth, uh, the things that matter to us uh, are not. And, for example, again, I was giving that example of what Saul, he was then Saul, wasn't he? Saul of Tarsus might have said, almost undoubtedly would have said about Jesus at the time when he was persecuting the church. And, oh, well, you know, he would have recognized, well, Jesus is uh, Jewish by, by a nation. He's a member of the tribe of Judah. Uh, I don't know if uh, Saul would have been aware that Jesus was a descendant of the royal line of David. I mean, as they used to say of kings, you know, descended in right line from uh, the kings of, his, of, of Israel and Judah. I don't know if he would have known that. And of course, that's certainly true. That he had worked as a carpenter in Nazareth. Or even, well, I guess Paul, Saul would have known this, but it wasn't any, a notable thing back then because Pretty much they all had a medium brown skin color, which is sometimes kind of uh, strange to us moderns, uh, modern Americans to think because um, you know, we have these paintings of Jesus that look like some medieval Swede or something. Um, and, you know, the Lord Jesus was a, a Middle Eastern Jew of the first century and would have had medium brown skin and, and probably very, very dark brown to black hair. All, do those things matter all that much? No, they don't. They don't matter at all, do they? I mean, well, okay, that he was descended from King David. Yeah, that's important. But he was Jewish. It's a fact. You know, yeah, it's true. He worked as a carpenter in Nazareth. We think that's true. It developed a lisp this morning. That's not good. Um, I, all uh, true statements but those aren't the big important things about the Lord Jesus. You know, when, when uh, uh, the Lord asked his disciples, whom do you say that I am? And Peter got it right. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's right. That's who he is. That's what's important about him, is that he is the son of God. He's the anointed one, the Messiah, the one whom God has sent into the world. He's the savior of the world. Those are the important things about him. So, though we might have known Christ according to flesh, right, we know a number of facts about him as to, in, earth, in an earthly sense, as to his earthly attributes. But the important things about him are that he is the Son of God and he's our Savior. That's awfully important, isn't it? Verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Okay, therefore, why is the therefore, or, you know, wherefore is the therefore, therefore? Well, uh, because of Christ's death and resurrection, because Christ died and rose again for our sins, therefore, because of that, if anyone is in Christ, in Christ, and it's in Christ where all of God's blessings to us are found. That's where we enjoy everything that Christ, that God has for us. And again, I think of Ephesians chapter 1, and this this long, what is it, like 14 verses, sentence, which is a hymn of praise to the glory of God for all that God has done in Christ 
for those who believe to the glory of God. God has brought glory to himself by saving those who believe uh, through Christ to all who are in Christ. And you think of the phrases, as you think back to Ephesians chapter 1, in him, in Christ, in the beloved. He's made us acceptable to God, in the beloved, all in Christ. These are things we enjoy in Christ. So um, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. He's been born again as a new man. Now, he might still look much the same uh, for the time being, but God is changing him from the inside out. Uh, the old things, the former manner of life, have passed away, and all things have become new. Thoughts, habits, feelings, and desires have been remade. Now, this might seem kind of optimistic. Um, we have perhaps often, since we came to Christ, wished that some of our former habits, some of our, frankly, our former desires would be gone, would be transformed, would be got rid of faster than seems to be the case. Well, I like an illustration that uh, a preacher used, again, another one of my favorite uh, Bible preachers, uh, Brother Alan Brown. And uh, he, he's about a generation older than me, and older than I am, and he told a story about when he was a boy, his family, for some reason, I don't know if they were very poor or what, but they did not have access to very much of dairy products and milk for a time, for a number, I guess, a, a number of months, perhaps a year, I don't know, but for a longish while, they didn't have access to enough dairy products. And, and I guess uh, he and his little brother were, were children at that time, and uh, they didn't have enough, I think it was vitamin D. I think they were deficient in vitamin D. And his brother became very deficient in vitamin D. And as you know, as you become deficient in vitamin D, your immune system functions less and less well. And then as you become very much deficient in vitamin D, um, you can get a, a, a syndrome called rickets. And uh, Alan's little brother got rickets, where the long bones of your body kind of soften. And if they're weight-bearing bones, they, they bend because they're not uh, strong enough. So his little brother got that, and his legs were bent. He was like, had a bow in his legs. Well, in course of time, things got better for that family, and they were able to start getting all the milk and whatever that they needed. So they were getting enough vitamin D, and they no longer had rickets. And now their bones are starting to grow the right way. But after that time, it was a number of months. I can't remember how long. It might have been a year or two. I don't know, really. But it was a good while. It was quite some time before his brother's legs stopped being bowed like that and being bent. They began to grow straight, but it took time. And, and Brother Brown used this as an illustration of how it is. We come to Christ, and we're made a new creature, and God is changing us from the inside out. But sometimes it takes a little while to get everything straightened out the way that it should be. In fact, it can take quite some time and Maybe the rest of our uh, life is really part of the process of sanctification. We're being made more and more and more and more like Christ, more and more holy as we go on. So uh, to hear this, uh, one could you read this and it almost could get too optimistic, 
Or, one could get despairing, I'm not completely like Christ yet, I must never have been saved, and, and despair regarding one's salvation. Well, no, not so. I have been made a new creature, and God is changing me now from the inside out. And um, God's will and God's plan in the likeness of Christ is being worked out more and more and more in my outward life. And it is. And you're thinking, wow, you must have been awful bad in the, in the old days, Woodworth. Yeah, I was. But, but praise the Lord, I'm getting better. So um, that's good. Well, uh, anyway, so all things have become new. He's making us, they've become new as a reality, and they are being worked out new. Regeneration is instantaneous. Sanctification is a process of a long time. Verse 18, now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. Every aspect of this amazing transformation by which, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creature, every aspect of this is God's doing. He did it all. I remember another, another actually quite well-known Christian figure who said that the uh, in some ways, Christianity is the easiest religion in the world, if you want to call it a religion. Some, I, again, not to quibble about words. But Christianity is the easiest religion in the world because God does it all. And in some ways, Christianity is the hardest religion in the world because God does it all. Uh, there's nothing left for me to glory about. There's nothing left for me to claim merit or accomplishment in. No merit badges in the spiritual things. But this, this is all of God's doing. God is the prime mover in reconciling us to himself, which is remarkable because God was the offended party, wasn't he? Um, God is the one who was sinned against. I was the one who did the sinning. Um, as we each may say, and as the Apostle Paul said, uh, that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And I've thought sometime that uh, that that statement could be signed by anyone who has a sufficient sense of his own uh, former ways and, and their significance. But um, to the chief of sinners, yes, uh, what an amazing thing. And although we had offended him, we had violated his justice, uh, we had uh, offended his holiness, uh, he was the offended party, and yet he took the initiative in restoring the relationship. And he can do that because he's God. He can do that because he can change us. He really can make us into something different than we were and even than we are. He can do that. And he has given us this ministry of reconciliation. Um, the ministry here again, the word for ministry going Again, not on my non-existent knowledge of the Greek language, but on that of the commentators who I read, uh, suggests a diligent service that's rendered freely and not of compulsion. So although the love of Christ constrains us and hems us in, what else can we do with the love of Christ? And yet God has put this ministry in us, and uh, it's also rendered freely. Almost a paradox there, isn't it? What else can we do when Christ has loved us so much and loves us so much? And yet, it's also our, our free ministry, that we, our free and happy service. It's not bondage 
and nothing that we do for the Lord, it seems like bondage was done for the right reason. You know, uh, well, yeah. I'll, I'll um, move on then to verse 19, because there's much more to say here, a bunch. So verse 19, that is the ministry of reconciliation. What is the ministry of reconciliation? What's the word of, ministration, uh, of reconciliation that we're, we're sharing? That is... Um, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Reconciling. Um, you know, there's another word that is, I guess, sometimes used, English word, that is sometimes used to translate, as I understand it, the Greek word here uh, translated as reconciling. And that is uh, reconciliation sometimes translated as atonement. And interestingly enough, when William Tyndall was translating the Bible into English, uh, Wycliffe had previously done so in in 1381, but uh, that was not widely available at this time, and Wycliffe had translated from the Latin. But um, Tyndall was translating the Bible from the original Greek and Hebrew in the early 1500s, and uh, when it was illegal. And uh, England was still Catholic then, and Tyndall was translating the Bible. And uh, he found that he did not have an English word for this word that here, a Greek word that's here translated reconciliation. I guess the word reconciliation was not available to him then, or as the English language has changed quite a bit since then, you know. I mean, Tyndall is writing like uh, 60 or 70 years before Shakespeare. And try reading some Shakespeare right off the bat and see how well you understand that. Sometimes that's not so easy to understand. So with a different language, so he wanted a word that could translate the concept of that we would use with the word reconciliation. English didn't have it, so he decided to make it. And when people were hostile to each other, uh, in, in the English language in Tyndall's day, when, when two people were enemies of each other, they were said to be at enmity with each other. And then when they made it up and everything was okay and they were reconciled, they were said to be at one with each other. With each other. So Tyndall uh, coined a word, a neology, and he called this, this making people not enemies anymore not people, making God and man no longer enemies, but reconciled to each other, he called this at-one-ment. And it's come down to us as atonement. Now, it's funny because we don't pronounce it at-one-ment at all. Frankly, I don't know how William Tyndall pronounced at-one-ment. He might have pronounced at-one-ment because they might have said own for one. It's interesting. A lot. Oh, and you want to see, like, not understand things? Um, so scholars have been working out, like, how English was pronounced in Shakespeare's day. And how they can do that is look at rhymes. Because when a poet, a good poet, is writing rhyming poetry, and you see the rhyme scheme, the words that are supposed to rhyme do. And sometimes we'll see, um, uh, like, in a song, we'll see where wound is put as though it rhymed with sound. Why, those don't rhyme at all. They did in Shakespeare's day. It was wound. Yeah, 
He was, he was sorely wounded. And um, that sounds strange to our ears, doesn't it? So uh, imagine, you know, and, that's, and Shakespeare is closer to us than Tyndall is. I don't know how Tyndall said at one moment or atonement or what, but that came from that, making us to be at peace with God. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ, and that's good news. So whether you say atonement or reconciliation, um, God was reconciling. And that's the central emphasis in this statement. As we read this, we'd say, well, the central idea is God was in Christ. That's a true statement. God was in Christ. Christ was God. I'm in the Father and he in me. True true statement. But that's not what this verse is talking about. It's, It's a truth which this verse mentions in passing. But this verse is focused on the statement that God was reconciling the world to himself. God was doing it. And he was doing it through the personal work of Christ. And again, all God's blessings come to us in Christ. For trespasses, uh, this is, of course, transgressions, meaning a stepping across. Uh, when we, we step across the line, God is, you know, here's the line. Don't cross it. And we cross over it. And we've done this, haven't we, uh, more than once. So their transgressions, he was not imputing their trespasses to them. Through the sacrifice of Christ, God can do this. Now, this is a season of the year when, as a professor, I'm under great, uh, or I receive many requests not to impute to people the things that they have done. Not to impute to them, for example, the wrong answers that they have given on tests. And, you know, it's interesting the students appeal to you. Well, it's not, well, actually, this could be seen as the right answer. That's very rare. That that will get a hearing from me. Okay, let's let's look. Let's see what's in the book. Let's see if that question was. But it's no. This was my last semester. I was supposed to graduate, and if you give me that D, which I earned, if you give me that D, I will not graduate. I'm sorry about that. I wish you could graduate, but it's not my job to give people grades that they want. It's my job to recognize the grades that they earn. I don't know. I may hear about that more. Professors hear this so frequently that sometimes professors are, are tempted to put out statements of, don't tell me about how mad your parents are going to be, how your graduation is going to be delayed, how you're going to be deported, and your immigration sta- and, uh, and all this stuff. Well, this semester, a history professor, not, it wasn't me, at TCU, because I'm, I have sometimes, I actually have some sense, but a history professor at TCU actually sent out an email that said that stuff. Huge outcry. Um, it went all over on Twitter. Amazing. But, you know, the thing is, a professor, if he's going to be an honest professor, or she, and is going to have integrity, has to give you the grade you earn. Has to be honest. I can't just say, okay, I'm going to say that you actually know more U.S. history than you demonstrated on the exams, papers, discussions, blah, 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 in this class. Um, Can't do that. I'd be dishonest. But how can God, who's absolutely just, absolutely just, how can he declare me righteous? And this is how he can do that. uh, Because one of my favorite verses, Romans 3.26, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. 
Because Jesus has paid the price for my sin, God can be absolutely honest, he always is, and absolutely just, likewise, uh, and declare it's paid in full. That sin has been taken care of. It is paid for. He can do that because uh, Christ satisfied God's justice on our behalf. And he's committed to us. He's placed in us the word of reconciliation, the message that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, and that God continues. He's going right on. To this day, the day of grace isn't over, and God goes right on, not imputing their trespasses to everyone who comes to him in repentance and faith. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and righteous and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise the Lord. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador is is charged with the responsibility of representing his sovereign. Uh, We we don't have a sovereign in the United States. The United States is sovereign. So ambassadors of the United States represent the sovereign United States. But uh, ambassadors are charged with representing the sovereign authority that stands behind them in all matters in which they have been authorized to speak, in all matters in which they've been authorized to treat. They speak as the mouth of uh, that, that uh, country. And as ambassadors for Christ, we are, uh, as it were, his, his ambassadors, his spokesmen. And we're authorized to speak for Christ in order to plead and exhort and encourage our fellow men and women, boys and girls, to be reconciled to God. We'll get it here in a minute. Last verse, 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So he appointed Christ to be the representative of sin and sinners. Not that Christ ever sinned, not that Christ had uh, sin in himself, of himself, or not that Christ had a sin nature, he did not. Not that Christ ever committed a sin. He did not. He knew no sin. Yet God appointed him the representative of sin and sinners. And God treated Christ as sin and sinners are treated and ought to be treated. He visited the punishment of sin on him. And Christ took on himself to be the representative of humanity in its aspect of sinfulness. Even though he didn't partake of that of himself of his nature, or by his actions. Yet he became the representative of humanity's sinfulness. And he bore the burden of sin in all of its completeness. And he could say, it is finished, because it really was finished. The whole problem of sin was finished, and the price was paid. Because of this, if we are in Christ, we are entitled to be regarded as God's righteousness, which Christ actually was and is. Christ is and was uh, and is still uh, God's righteousness. But we can be rightly amazing, uh, considered God's righteousness, not in ourselves, but in Christ, who is our representative in all things. It reminds me in closing of a, uh, uh, a John Newton hymn, Uh, You know, John Newton was the former slave ship captain who wrote Amazing Grace. 
And he wrote another hymn that I really like, and the words go, Now let us join with hearts and tongues and emulate the angels' songs. Yea, sinners can address their king in, er, in songs that angels cannot sing. They praise the lamb that once was slain, but we can add a higher strain. Not only say he suffered thus, but that he suffered all for us. When angels by transgression fell, justice consigned them all to hell. But mercy formed a wondrous plan to save and honor fallen man. Jesus, who passed the angels by, assumed our flesh to bleed and die. And still he makes it his abode. As man, he fills the throne of God. Our next of kin, our brother now, is he to whom the angels bow. They join with us to sing his praise, but, no, to praise his name. There you go. They join with us to praise his name, but we the nearer interest claim. O glorious hour, it comes with speed, when we from sin and darkness freed shall see the God who died for man and praise him more than angels can. I like that hymn. Well, let's, let's close with prayer then. Our Father, we thank you for your great love for us, which you demonstrated to us in that Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet far from you, uh, you um, gave Christ for us. And much more now, being reconciled through his blood, um, we have peace with you. We, have, uh, we are at one with you, and uh, we thank you for this. And we thank you for your ongoing work of grace in our hearts by which you're making us more like Christ. We pray that you would do so in us more and more. We commit now into your hand this, uh, the, the coming service and pray that you would be with your servant as he brings your word to us and give him clarity of thought and, and uh, clarity of utterance to say just what you would say to your people today. Give us ears to hear and hearts to understand and obey uh, your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed.